In October 1914, Venustiano Carranza, first chief of the Constitutionalist Army and provisional president of Mexico, announced the reorganization of his diplomatic and consular services in the United States. One of Carranza's most important consular appointments was a fellow Coahuilan, Andres G. Garcia, as constitutionalist representative in El Paso, Texas. During the next five years, Garcia emerged as the most important and trusted Carrancista representative on the U.S.-Mexico border. From his post in the strategically situated city, Garcia not only served as Carranza's most visible spokesman, but also oversaw an extensive enterprise of espionage and propaganda dedicated to defending the first chief and the constitutionalist movement. El Paso was unmatched as a center of international intrigue. Historians Charles Harris and Lewis Sadler have likened the city to West Berlin at the height of the Cold War, with more than its share of agents, double and triple agents, mercenaries, gunrunners, and propagandists. Stephen Pinckney, special agent of the U.S. Department of Justice's Bureau of Investigation, reported that, quote, every faction is represented in El Paso, each having scores of informants and detectives keeping tabs on the others. There is more double dealing going on than in any other place on the globe. The juntas of the various factions hold their meetings in El Paso and direct their operations from this side. He complained that it was impossible for a single agent to secure the border and noted that even if the government assigned a dozen federal agents to the city, 12, they could not prevent all the violations of U.S. neutrality laws, arms smuggling, and other illegal activities. Given such circumstances, Venustiano Carranza obviously did not place Garcia in El Paso merely to issue visas and oversee mundane commercial transactions. He needed an operative of proven ability and absolute trust to defend his interests along the border, and Garcia possessed the desired requirements. Consular regulations limited Garcia's formal duties to encouraging commerce, promoting friendly international relations, and assisting Mexican citizens. Revolutionary conditions since the days of Porfirio Diaz, however, had transformed Mexican consular agents into key components of a binational network of clandestine operations. Garcia built his own propaganda and intelligence organizations and dispersed thousands of dollars, suggestively, suggestively designated as gastos secretos, secret expenses, in the budget of the Foreign Office. He cultivated friendly relations with the El Paso Herald, representatives of the International Wire Services and local journalists, and spent hundreds of dollars a month to subsidize friendly Spanish-language newspapers such as Fernando Gamio Pichi's El Paso del Norte. Garcia also carefully constructed an intelligence network comprised of consular detectives, deep cover secret agents, and dozens of informants on both sides of the border, particularly in Ciudad Juarez and Chihuahuita, South El Paso's burgeoning Mexican barrio. These contacts included Mexican hotel clerks, maids, bartenders, prostitutes, transients, migrant workers, deserters, and refugees. He also counted numerous Anglo and Chicano journalists, telegraphers, police officials, customs officers, and military personnel among his intelligence assets. These sources enabled him to keep apprised of enemy conspiracies, military maneuvers, and diplomatic strategies. They also helped him to assess U.S. governmental policies and gauge public opinion. Garcia's deep cover operatives included three Mexicans who called themselves Equis, Hash, and Dormilonas, and a gringo known only as Don. His top agent was apparently Canuto Reyes Vasquez, codename Equis, a carrancista mole who had penetrated the Viista organization in El Paso. Equis was a 25-year-old ex-Viista officer from Parrasco, Huila, who now worked at the American Smelting and Refining Company, Asarco, the smelter in El Paso. He had served in Pancho Villa's División del Norte and was a close acquaintance of Villa's brother, Hipolito. 
Known as El Chino, Equis also acted as private secretary for former General Macrino Martinez, head of the Vista Junta in El Paso. Thus, Equis was intimately acquainted with all the leading Vistas, deeply involved in their affairs, and enjoyed access to the most secret discussions and confidential documents. In January 1917, Equis and Garcia executed one of their most spectacular intelligence coups. While Pershing's punitive expedition was still chasing Pancho Villa and Chihuahua, Equis helped acquire a letter written by Charles H. Hunt, addressed to Pancho Villa and entrusted to Dario Silva, a member of the Vista Junta in El Paso and Villa's former private secretary. Hunt was a cattle dealer with extensive interests in Mexico and a close associate of Senator Albert B. Fall of New Mexico, a leading spokesman for U.S. business interests in Mexico, and a rabid anti-carrancista. After having discussed the matter with Fall, Hunt offered to arrange a meeting between the senator and Villa at a place of the latter's choosing. He assured Villa that, quote, Senator Fall is bitterly against Carranza and all his methods, regarding him as a tyrant dragging down the Mexican nation and people into the depth of misery and ruin and disgracing them before the world. Fall and his associates offered Pancho Villa financial and political assistance to protect U.S. property interests in Chihuahua, continue his armed struggle against Carranza, and establish a stable government in Mexico. As historian Friedrich Katz points out, Fall essentially intended that Villa divide Mexico and create a separate republic comprised of the states of Baja California, Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Nuevo León, as well as Tamaulipas and northern Veracruz, which held most of Mexico's rich petroleum deposits. Publication of this letter in the New York Times, however, exposed and foiled the senator's scheme. And that is from an article entitled Andres G. Garcia, Venustiano Carranza's Eyes, Ears, and Voice on the Border, from Michael M. Smith of Oklahoma State University, published in the Journal of Mexican Studies, Volume 23, Issue 2, in 2007. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Heart Country. and welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm joined by Joshua Trevino, our chief of intelligence and research. Thank you, Josh, for reading that passage. I am sure you're winded because that was a very long passage. It was a long one. Yes, sorry. (laughs) I wanted to give you the opportunity to unpack it for our listeners and tell us why you chose it. It's such an interesting passage, and it was really hard. It's actually a 33-page article, so I cut a lot. Oh. Uh, and 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 actually, I cut the uh, the part that I that I personally was most interested in, which uh, referred to Carrancista complicity in the 1915 Plan de San Diego, which of course was the Mexican uh, uh, basically plan to instigate uh, instigate a race war in South Texas, um, exterminating the Anglo's and reclaiming Texas and the rest of the southwestern states from Mexico. Um, but it's it, it's so interesting to me uh, uh, because you know what we see in in this one episode and Andres Garcia is, is a figure I didn't know about before reading this article, uh, but this the, this consular official and what he had to do in terms of of advancing the interests of his particular faction in Mexico during the era of the Mexican Revolution. And you've got you've got almost the whole shebang. You've got you've got uh, you know uh, covert operations inside the United States. You've got monitoring and influence on American public opinion and policy. Mm. Uh, you have the Americans, various Americans doing the same. 
And uh, it, it, it made me think, actually, of a paper that one of our colleagues, uh, yeah. you know, one of your colleagues and mine, just wrote on Grayson. Uh, Grayson Gee, who works here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation with us, <clears throat> uh, wrote a paper on Mexican election interference in the United States. Um, have, have, have you had an opportunity to read this paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, course. well, I edited I mean, it a couple times. Oh, you, oh, you edited it a couple yeah. times. Well, mea culpa, then that's why it's so good. Well, tell us a little bit about it and yeah. know, we can... It's actually amazing that we had it out. I know it's something that you and I have talked about a lot, even on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but it's exciting that it's come out this fast. And it's like a very succinct way to show how our, the current president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, has consistently threatened that he is going to interfere with how not just Mexicans, but Hispanics vote in the upcoming U.S. elections because of some of the rhetoric that some of those candidates have had when it comes to immigration, yeah. uh, illegal immigration specifically. Yeah. And so the the paper pretty much summarizes those statements. Um, and yeah, it's a really great paper. I suggest that everybody read it. Everybody, everybody should read it. And they should understand really the uh, kind of the impunity with which uh, Mexican officialdom uh, sees itself as operating in. Yeah. Uh, not unreasonably, by the way, because nothing whatsoever ever happens to them when they do this. But as the paper lays out, and it is a, it is a very short paper. It's a short, yeah. tight, tight monograph. Um, that lays out how the president of Mexico, AMLO, uh, the former uh, essentially foreign secretary, Marcelo Ebrard, uh, all said and encouraged U.S. citizens um, of Hispanic descent to throw their vote one way or the other in, uh, in, in, in U.S. elections, which is pretty extraordinary. Mexican politicking on U.S. soil is nothing new. There's a significant uh, uh, number of Mexican nationals in the United States, obviously, um, uh, and they vote. They vote in Mexican <laughs> elections. And so you've seen, at least for the past 20 years, you know, 25 years that I've been paying attention, Mexican presidential candidates, for example, will routinely come to the United States and they'll and hold campaign, campaign rallies in, yeah. in Los Angeles and places like that. And that's, you know, I would put that in quotes, but that's fairly normal. You know, in, in, in Laredo, you, you and I have probably talked about this before. There's Morena posters in Laredo, yeah. uh, you know, exhorting people to support AMLO. Um, what's new about uh, really the situation in the past two years is uh, this th th this effort by Mexican office holders not just to uh, exert influence on um, Mexican nationals in the U.S. and their votes in Mexican elections, but attempts to exert influence on U.S. nationals of Mexican descent, of Hispanic descent in the United yeah, States. Not just Mexican descent. Any, uh, any not Latin just Mexican American, descent. Yeah. Any, right, uh, yeah, any Hispanic. Including me. Including yeah, you, of yes, of course, uh, with your, with your uh, you know, deep ties to our Mexican <laughs> party officialdom. Um, uh, to, uh, to 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 sway their vote uh, within the Republican primary, within the general election, and so on. Um, even as recently, this is not in the paper, but even as recently as I think last week, uh, uh, AMLO uh, got up there and, and very smugly uh, claimed credit for um, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida oh, and yeah, his struggles, his struggles in in Republican primary polling, um, saying that uh, you know basically taking credit for it, uh, saying that as soon as we exposed his anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, yeah. you know you know he started to fall. And so the, and so there's this real belief. It's quite dangerous actually. There's this real belief among Mexican officialdom that that they can do this. That there's not going to be a penalty for it. And that they themselves are uh, you know sort of dispositive players in in U.S. elections. Now set aside the fact that this is illegal. 
um, uh, it's 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 prudentially foolish, and one would hope, uh, without without a lot of expectation, unfortunately, well, one would hope that, um, uh, particularly for the Biden regime, which has made such great hay over protecting elections, you know, safeguarding the integrity or a democratic process, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a guy recently who was sentenced, I think, to seven seven months in federal prison because he posted a joke about Hillary Clinton uh, Clinton in the <laughs> on, on on Twitter in uh, in the um, uh, 2016 cycle, and now he's you know. You know, he's he's supposedly uh, uh, you, know, you know debasing our elections. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the joke that he told uh, too. He basically said that you could text in your vote. You know, it was kind of like 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 the stupid thing. Uh, Wait, did he actually go to prison for that? He's you know he's in prison right now uh, for it. He was sentenced uh, within the past several days. Uh, I, I believe his name is Douglas Mackey. I'll have to double check that. I didn't but, know uh, about oh, this. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. It's it's uh, it's 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 actually pretty important. He's being made an example of. Um, it's what's happening. Look, I told that joke too. I you know I got up in front of my you know then. Um, uh, MBA class and said that uh, uh, you know it's it, this is a dumb joke by the way I'm not saying it's a funny joke but because one of the oldest election jokes in the book but Republicans are, are all going to vote on Tuesday Democrats will vote on Wednesday so just make sure you vote uh, at the same time like that's the, that's a joke so you're, you don't know when election day oh. is and so and so that that was the type of joke that he told uh, and now he's in jail for it and so so all of which is to say I mean this is not this is not an election podcast but but uh, you know with DOJ <laughs> prosecuting folks like that you would think that they would be very alert to a neighboring foreign power and the president uh, and the secretary of, you know, external relations of that foreign power actually, you know, going, coming to the United States in the case of Ebrard and telling uh, U.S. nationals that they need to vote this way or that. Um, and, and it's incredible. And what, what uniformly provokes it is either a U.S. office holder will uh, criticize the Mexican state on its actions or lack thereof against illegal immigration, which is entirely just, or they'll note that the Mexican state has a real problem with criminal cartels, which it absolutely does. Yeah. And of course, that generates a reaction that's a tell from them. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, we published a paper on it. Uh, those of you listening should it. go. Yeah, thank you. We'll link yeah. it in the in, in the description, but you all should read it. But that's one of the reasons I picked this piece to really illuminate uh, kind of the historic um, uh, connection and intertwinedness. I don't even know if that's a word uh, of, like of, uh, of, of, of of politics and interest in both the United States and Mexico. Well, that's a great start. Thank you, Josh, for thank picking you. that. Yeah. And I also want to start the podcast by you know, sharing a very exciting announcement with all of our listeners. Um, I think last week when we were filming on Tuesday, um, that was the day that the governor announced that he was calling the fourth special session yes. on the same day that the third special ended. Um, and we found out that border security was on the call. So we announced it, I think, while we were live recording our last podcast. Yes. Um, but at the time... We, we we didn't know. We didn't know very much. We didn't know what bills would be filed. Um, but then the next day, we started finding out. Um, and then um, we started preparing. We started preparing to testify. Mm -hmm. And so there were um, two pieces of border security legislation that would help us secure more funding for border barrier infrastructure. And that would help us rein in some of the lawlessness that we've inherited from our federal government at the border. Yeah, And those are... Those were SB3 and SB4, or HB3 and HB4 with their identical companions in the right, Senate. Right, <clears throat> Texas SB3 and SB4. Exactly, yeah, yes, right. here in Texas. So, so Senate Bill 3 provides additional funding, like I said, for border barrier infrastructure, and mm -hmm. then as well as some 
funding for the public safety in the Colony Ridge development in Liberty County, which, as we know, right. is being just overrun with illegal immigration. And then we have Senate Bill 4, which I know that we've both testified on in some form or fashion in, in a different session, in yes. a different special session, or you in the regular session as well. But it creates uh, a new state offense for entering or reentering Texas illegally from a foreign nation. Correct. And so only two days after the start of the special session on Thursday, which I think is the day that I testified, Mm -hmm. um, both were quickly moved out of the Senate and sent to the House. And just two nights ago, so not last night, but the night before, um, the Texas House passed both of them, which is very good news. And we're very excited about it. So SB3 has been amended and it's going to go back to the Senate. Um, But SB4... Um, is now headed to Governor Greg Abbott's desk, and he has said that he intends to sign the proposal into law. So that's great news for all of our listeners. Um, We're very grateful for all the leadership for making this happen. Yeah, and and, uh, SB4 uh, headed to the governor's desk still contains the deportation provision, doesn't it? Um, it's a removal provision. It's a removal. It's not I'm sorry. De- deportation, removal, but yes. um, they can be ordered to remove. But it, yes. the state of Texas cannot actually conduct the removal. Is that no, right? no, no, no. Yes. And and it's changed a little bit. Um, the former, the former bill that we had that passed the House the last special session, so the third called special session, allowed police officers to make that call. So mm-hmm. police officers or any peace officer would be able to announce a magistrate detain, and now it would have to go to a judge or a magistrate. Right. So. Okay. So that's how it passed. But, yeah, we're excited about it. I think any, you know, any bill that we have that would create that additional deterrence that right now is unfortunately not there is something that's positive um, for our state. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to say, I know this is something that, you know, we've been working on for a long time, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to say something about SB4. I know that we've been getting a lot of questions and a lot of people that are concerned because it's being distorted a lot by the media and some advocacy groups that think that this will allow people to be deported in mass and right. um, that it will cause some racial profiling. So right. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, big issues. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, you know, it, with the passage of, of SB4 headed to the governor's desk and obviously SB3 has got to go back to the House, I believe. Is that right? Back to the Senate. Back to the Senate, I apologize. Yes. Um, uh, well, I, I want to congratulate you uh, uh, and, and your fellow policy director, Selena Rodriguez, uh, and the campaign chief, Karine Martinez, because the three of you on the Texas Public Policy Foundation end have been the ones at the tip of the spear, kind of, you know, you know in, informing and helping and aiding uh, and supporting the passage of this. So, so it's well done. Thank uh, you. Uh, uh, you know, you know you're, 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 not, you're not new to, you personally, Melissa, are not new to the world of policy and politics at all. You served in the White House and a lot of things, but I would say you're relatively new in the Texas sphere yes uh, and uh, and so you have you know in year one you have uh, led the way on transformative legislation so 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 well done uh, Thank that's, you. Uh, that's quite a record of achievement look SB4 is <laughs> is uh, well I'll, I'll talk about that because um, uh, I know it best and I also think that SB4 is actually the most transformative of the two bills not that three is is small potatoes because it's not uh, but you know to, to, to do what 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 Texas Senate bill for and the fourth call special session of the 88th legislature Texas legislature does uh, which is create a, a misdemeanor escalating to a felony for illegal entry into Texas and then allowing a magistrate to order removal of that person from Texas is absolutely extraordinary fully constitutional 
by the by. Uh, you know, that's something that we, we we at the foundation have talked about, and you and I have talked about personally from the start. Um, but we have to we have to you know take a moment to appreciate just how just how strong a measure mm-hmm. this is. And uh, but but as we appreciate how strong it is, we also have to understand that it is not radical. It's not extra constitutional, nor is it even unprecedented. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the past century. This has been one of the topics on this on this podcast. The past century has seen essentially state powers and the understanding of state powers under the Constitution atrophy. I mean, it's atrophied for two big reasons. One is that states just haven't had to think about a lot of the things that we used to think about. Uh, you know, Texas and the Texas-Mexico border um, were scenes of endemic warfare, essentially from essentially from the day of creation all the way through the early 1920s, and they haven't been for a century. And so we've forgotten. Uh, we collectively have forgotten a lot of the policy reflexes and options that we've had for dealing with that. SB4 gets us back to a full exercise of those powers. The other reason, of course, is that the relationship between the states and the federal government has changed as the progressive vision of the administrative state has advanced further and further with the ultimate aim of reducing states to essentially administrative units. And uh, thank goodness Texas is is pushing back on that. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, uh, you know, I think the fact that Texas gets to, under this law, adjudicate who's there um, uh, and and you know, with the magistrate's approval, actually order the removal from Texas territory is politically transformative. Now, the proof is in the application. Uh, I, you know, I, I would guess, and I don't have any inside information on this, that it is almost inevitable that the U.S. Department of Justice files a lawsuit to prevent implementation of this law. That'd be my guess. Uh, you know, as soon as it's signed, you're going to hear something. And one of the reasons I think that is that the Mexicans are already protesting it. Yeah. Um, uh, and we know why they're protesting it. Shutting down <laughs> the human trafficking and the remittances flow mm-hmm. is a direct strike at the one thing that the Mexican state cares about, which is not the welfare of its citizens. It's not the justice of anything happening on the border. It's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and so SB4 and its implementation will affect the flow of money, and that's something that they care about. We also know that the DOJ is going to respond, our DOJ is going to respond to whatever the Mexicans ask because they believe that the Mexicans have them over a barrel during the election year in 2024. I think I might have just interrupted you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're yeah. you're totally good. I was going to read you the Mexican government's reaction oh, means, a little yes, bit so please. you could comment on it. Thank but you. what you said, everything is absolutely correct. And um there's there's nothing radical. There's nothing unjust yeah. about ordering someone that's here illegally to return to where they came from. Correct. And I think that's something a lot of people don't seem to understand. But I wanted to tell you about the Mexican government's reaction. Mexico has rejected SB4, oh. um, saying that it will violate the human rights of Mexican immigrants in Texas. And the statement of Alicia Barcena, uh, Mexico's secretary for foreign relations, um, she said, the government of Mexico reiterates its rejection of any measure that contemplates the involuntary return of migrants without respect for due process. Mexico recognizes the sovereign right of any country to decide the public policies that should be implemented in its territory. But Mexico also has a right to defend the estimated 10 million people of Mexican origin in Texas and establish its own immigration policies in its territory. So anyway. Well, uh, that's that's uh, that's that's all very well and good for them to say. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad I'm glad uh, SRE and, <clears throat> and uh, Morena and the, and the Mexican state uh, who are routinely silent when uh, trafficked migrants are massacred by the dozen, mm-hmm. beheaded, raped, thrown into pits to die. Their children sold in slave markets. Uh, they, they don't. They don't ever issue a statement then, uh, but they do issue a statement when Texas decides to defend itself. Uh, and it, um, I'll, I'll be candid with you. It just it simply increases my 
my, my and I think any rational person's disdain and disgust uh, for, for, for this apparatus uh, on the south side of the border that uh, regards the lives of its own fellow men with such um, uh, with, 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 it places such a low value on them. Um, uh, you know what, what they're interested in is keeping the traffic flowing because it keeps the money flowing. 100%. End of story. That's what they want. Uh, and that's why they're protesting. That's why they say they reject a Texas law and that it's in their power to do so. The tragedy of it, of course, is that Washington, D.C. and the Biden regime are 100% going to do what the Mexicans ask of them. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, because, no because, doubt. Because, because they, they, no doubt. We've seen it before, right? No, we've seen them, you know, we've seen the federal agents uh, go and wreck uh, Texas border infrastructure. Uh, we've actually, you know, there's there's video out there of, of, of watching federal agents actually lift, lift and cut wire so that uh, illegal migrants can enter Texas. Uh, now they're using a tractor. So now they they're using tractors to, to do it. Yeah. So they don't even have to cut it. And yeah, nobody needs to needs to get their hands dirty. Um, uh, you, know, you know, Texas. I think it's worth worth um, repeating something that we've uh, we said before on this podcast. Texas is fighting two two regimes. Uh, yeah. You know, we're fighting the regime in Mexico City, um, and but we're also fighting the regime in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, and, and they have made common cause with one another against Texas. So th- this legislation is fantastic. It's it's epical. There's one aspect of it that you mentioned that I haven't addressed yet, uh, which I will now. Um, uh, but but it's not the end. There's also going to be implementation. And right. there's probably also going to be litigation to it. And, and and I cannot understate the extent to which that litigation and that fight uh, that's coming is is literally existential. Do we rule ourselves? Do we have a right to preserve our communities? Do we have a right to decide who is and who isn't our neighbor? Um, th- these are these are fundamental questions uh, at stake. And uh, uh, you know, I would I would I would encourage the listener here to to, yeah. to understand them as such. Now, 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 you raise the issue of racial profiling, uh, uh, which which I think is important. Um, there is there is a, a a train of thought. I mean, how would I even describe this? A train of thought, a rhetorical line. Um, uh, you know, you and I have both at, at various points. You much more recently than me have been have been testifying mm-hmm. um, uh, in favor of the of, of these bills. To, yeah. So, so what was uh, I should say by way of setting <clears throat> this up? You were the only voice in favor of this bill uh, yeah. uh, for four. When public testimony came, there were, what, 20 others who testified against, something like that? Or was it more than that? The first time in the third special session, yes. The, the second time, I actually was the first to testify, and I didn't stick around you didn't for stick all around the others. But okay. I know there was, like, a huge call to action, so there was going to be a lot. What does everybody say? What does everybody who's against it, what do they always say? It's unfair. It's inhumane. It's racist. Please don't be racist. Um, I have Hispanic friends and... Um, I don't want to see them be kicked out of our country. <clears throat> and then you see like very, you know, bright legal minds just coming up and saying it's it's wrong. It's unconstitutional. We can't do this. Right. And that is just repeatedly what we hear. Yeah. And then one person that just said, I beg you, please, I beg you, please don't pass this bill. So it's racist. It's racist. Uh, it's racist. It's inhumane. It's, uh, and and uh, Hispanics and and you know, brown people are going to be kicked out of the country. They're going to be terrorized. It's going to disproportionately affect uh, black and brown people. Now, not to put you on the spot, but you're you're Bolivian American. Uh, your husband, who is one of my favorite soccer guys, uh, <laughs> is is uh, is is also Bolivian. Uh, are either of you concerned that SB four is going to get you kicked out of the country? No. Tell t- tell me why. Because the left tells me that you should be you should be afraid of this. Well, first of all, we're here legally, so we're well, not. Imagine that. Yeah, we're not yeah. scared. Um, <laughs> especially, you know, my husband waited six years in Bolivia 
before he got to set foot here. And so I think especially people like my husband and my husband's family who have waited so long and worked so hard and paid lawyers so much money and done it the right way to come here are especially outraged by the crisis that's going on right now. And uh, and and so I guess not not to put words in his mouth or yours, but uh, is it fair to say there's a sentiment in favor of measures like this, which uh, which hold people to account? Absolutely, especially if you care, you know, if you care about your fellow Latinos and Mexicans and Hispanics, like if you care about them, then you would want some sort of deterrent there in place so that we can have a more organized system for people to come in legally. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not driving them through to the grasp of the cartels or pushing them to come here in a way that's very dangerous and unsafe between ports of entry. We all know what happens at the border. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to, if you're just looking for basic humanity, shutting down the shutting down the trafficking is the most humane thing you can do, right? So, so I, I think this all gets to gets to kind of the big point. This is the reputation of what our friends on the left are saying, and, and it, as is as is typically the case, that they really have no argument other than there, there's racial iniquity and this is racist and this and that. Um, uh, it is it is uh, nearly impossible uh, to imagine anything can happen within the contingency of human history, but is it, it is it is impossible to imagine. I shouldn't even say nearly. It's impossible to imagine that SB four or anything like it is going to result in a reign of terror against Texas Hispanics, people who look. Uh, Mexican. I mean, whatever that means. Like, I, I am Mexican. I don't look, you know, people don't think I look Mexican, but I, but, but I am. Um, uh, uh, that they're going to be rounded up and and sent back to Mexico. Uh, this is, the, the, you know, the, the the way in which the law is structured uh, is such that uh, you, it, mere illegal presence. Uh, is not is not what the law says. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's actually a legal entry. Yes, uh, from a foreign nation. It's from a for- legal entry from a foreign nation. So, the, so there has to be uh, the, there has to be that extra the, the that extra element of action right. uh, uh, to it. And then and then a magistrate obviously is going to. So it's not the individual discretion of uh, of a peace officer on the ground. Um, uh, but but there's a magistrate who has to be persuaded of this case, yeah, right? No, so, so 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 the, the, there's a series of and then and then of course there's provisions for identity verification in the bill. Actually, that was something that uh, uh, when the fourth special opened, that both chambers uh, you know made sure that was in there. Yeah. Uh, and so and so it, it is it is simply unrealistic uh, yeah. to 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 conclude that there's going to be kind of a mass uh, roundup of, of individuals that, you know, I, I, I should note that that has happened in American history. There was a under the Hoover administration. Uh, there was a there was a policy called Mexican repatriation, which actually cleared out uh, a great deal of the Southwest of uh, of anyone who was Mexican or Mexican American. That was during the Great Depression, right? During the Great Depression, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Uh, and, and and the intent was it was actually a disastrous policy. And so so that that particular policy, because it was indiscriminate uh, and it was it was essentially aimed at eradicating entire communities, which is absolutely not the case uh, here. I mean, there, there's no constituency for that. Even even if there was, it would be immoral and illegal, so you couldn't do it. Um, uh, but uh, but that, that that actually did push American citizens of Mexican descent uh, into Mexico uh, at the time. Interestingly enough, the thesis behind it was that if you got rid of the Mexican population, uh, you would decrease unemployment because there would be a labor shortage, and then and then every what, what ended up ha- actually happening was that they shrank the economy, and so the depression got worse in the areas that uh, oh. that, that happened. Anyway, a, a bit of a historical mm-hmm. footnote, all of which is to say that the barest charity that I can extend to a lot of our friends on the left who are critics of SB uh, SB four. Is that is that there's some historical you know precedent for their fears? Uh, you have to go back uh, almost 90 years uh, to get to it, but it's there. Um, but the reality is that when you look at the bill, when you look at how it's structured, 
also, when you look at the nature of law enforcement uh, in, in South Texas, heavily, heavily Hispanic, heavily Mexican-American, uh, there's just no grounds for thinking that there's going to be um, you know, anything like what they predict. What my guess is that what you're going to see is because uh, you know, the, the, the traffic individuals and the migrants and the traffickers themselves are exceptionally well-informed as to the nature of policy on the north side of the border, they're going to know that Texas is probably not a place you want to cross mm -hmm. because you will not, like the, the old regime where even if state law enforcement caught you, they turned you over to the feds and the feds are definitely going to let you go, um, that's over. And these are rational incentive people and it's going to change behavior, hopefully for the good. Yeah. Well, can I ask you one thing I'm very curious about is what's going to happen if Mexico refuses to accept the migrants that are being removed because of SB4? Because as you know, like yeah. a lot of them are not from Mexico. A lot of them are other foreign nationals. We've talked about this before. It's mm -hmm. like a little UN. They have people from, you know, Central and Latin America, Canada, uh, Asia, Europe, Africa. Um, actually, in fiscal year 2023, this, mm -hmm. this, this number was actually very surprising mm -hmm. to sure. me. Um, but fiscal year 2023 ended on September 30th. But 83% of the 1 million immigrants encountered by Border Patrol at the Texas-Mexico border were not Mexican citizens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know that Mexico has agreements in place with the U.S. government to accept Mexican citizens and then some uh, some, some people from other countries um, when they are deported from the U.S., but it would be very unprecedented for Mexico to create some sort of like diplomatic relationship with a U.S. state over immigration. And so I'm just curious, how do you see that playing out? The Mexicans will do it if, if they perceive it as in their interest to do so. Uh, if, if I, you know, I, I don't have any, I don't have a crystal ball uh, here. My, my guess is that probably concurrent with whatever uh, litigation is brought by the U.S. Department of Justice against Texas, uh, the Mexicans will, you know, you know quite plausibly decide uh, that uh, that uh, they're not going to take anybody. And if they decide not to, then then you know we can't we can't force them to. Uh, it's 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 beyond our power. Um, uh, and so, but 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 the law provides for uh, criminal penalties. You know, misdemeanors escalating to felonies depending on on what it is. And so those individuals will then will then be subject to justice at uh, you know in 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 the state of Texas. Yeah. Uh, and then and then and then so be it. Uh, you know that's uh, and then and then presumably. Uh, once that's served, you know, have whatever that looks like, then they get remanded into into federal custody. And at, mm -hmm. th at that point, you know, the, the record there is not robust. But mm -hmm. I think I think uh, you know, you know, focusing on that uh, is important. We have to understand why what's going to happen is happening. But we can't miss. Um, I'm not pushing back against you at all, by the way, Melissa. Um, but uh, you know, we, we can't miss, even if the Mexicans accept no people remanded across the border ever, the political point that's being made mm -hmm. is tremendously important, which is that states have this power to protect their citizenry. And that is existentially important at yeah. this juncture in history. No, and the situation right now at the border absolutely calls for some sort of a solution. Um, we just got the new numbers for October. And although it, there's like a very slight decrease from September, it's still so high. I mean, there was over 240,000 people encountered at mm -hmm. the border. Encounters, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I also just saw this report that was released by the House Committee on Homeland Security a couple of days ago, since we're talking about the border. Um, but it's this is like a very long, it's a 49-page report. Um, but it shows some numbers that were very alarming. Um, it found that the Southern border crisis has cost American taxpayers around 451 billion mm. 
billion yeah. <laughs> per year for services that have been provided to a record number of illegal aliens under the Biden administration. So this is, you know, money that's being lost on um, law enforcement, education, housing, health care, which is a huge cost um, in other sectors. But it takes into account the millions of illegal immigrants that are being released by DHS and also the, as we know, 1.7 million known gotaways that we've had at our southern border. Yeah. And so, as we know, like only a very tiny fraction of all of this money is ever recouped um, by the taxes that are paid by illegal aliens. So the rest is going to fall on the shoulders of American citizens, lawful mm-hmm. residents, American businesses, federal and state governments. Yeah. Um, so that just blew my mind. That's a very big number. I can't even fathom how much it is. Sorry, but... it's 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 over two hundred thousand just in a month in the past month, uh, encounters. Two hundred forty. Two hundred forty thousand yeah, in the past that's, month. That's that's a month of uh, October, and that is the highest number ever for an October. And that's just encounters. Uh, I mean, again, we say this every time, but it's small... uh, you know, if, if if you go by the rule of thumb that it's only you only encounter twenty percent of the people who are actually crossing, that that blows past a million. Uh, yeah. Just for the month of October, who entered Absolutely. the United States, yeah. and as we know, like the Biden administration has failed to remove like ninety nine percent of the illegal immigrants that have been released here in the U.S. That's and right. so we're getting a massive influx. And I kind of wanted to use that to ask you about an article that you sent me. Um, I know we're a five hundred one c three. We don't endorse candidates, but we are allowed to talk about their policies and yeah. about their proposals. So I yeah. wanted to bring up one Republican um, contender. That I used to work for, um, uh, our former president, Donald Trump, um, he said that if he regains power, he wants not only to revive some of his old immigration policies that Mm -hmm. have been heavily criticized by a lot of people during his presidency, but that he actually wants to expand and toughen them if he becomes our next president. So, you know, he's talked about deportations, um, bringing back something like Title 42, but making it a little bit more broad so it can stick around. Sure. Um, he's even talked about revoking like very specific things like revoking the visas of some of the foreign students, the international students that oh, are yeah. Um, yeah. Pro- at the pro-Palestine uh, um, protests. He wants to earn birth and birthright citizenship, Yeah. Um, revoke TPS, temporary protected status and, and a lot of other things. So if essentially he's like ready to unleash all the federal powers of um Basically, an, an immigration crackdown, like something that we've never seen before in this country. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on that. I, uh, y- you know, it wasn't clear to me from, and maybe I didn't read the article closely enough. Uh, I mean, this is in the New York Times, I guess three days ago, if I remember correctly, yeah, earlier, yeah, yeah. earlier this week as about we record. Uh, but uh, so I don't I don't recall what the sourcing is. So, so I, I don't think, I just want to put an asterisk on it. I don't think any of the sourcing for this was was from like any official campaign document. But, uh, no. but when, they, when they contacted um, Stephen Miller, S- Stephen Miller and, and people like that, like they didn't deny it. They were like, yeah, this is this is along the lines of our thinking. So let, let's assume that the reporting is is uh, l- largely accurate. Um, uh, I think, honestly, I think there's a lot of really popular stuff in there, um, uh, and, and and largely there there are a few elements that, like like from a from a prudential standpoint, I would dissent from. I, I mean, I happen to think uh, birthright citizenship's been a net positive uh, for the country, you know, under the prevailing understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment, but. Um, uh, I wouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, if the president uh, or the future president, you know, be that as it may, we're not predicting here. But let's say you know Donald Trump does become president again, 
in January 2025. Uh, you know what you what you see there outlined in the New York Times is in candor and an overwhelmingly good policy. You know in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of bringing accountability to a broken border, um, to reforming uh, how immigration is adjudicated in the United States, and 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 also by by imposing real penalties in the form of removal uh, for illegal entry for violation of terms of visas. Um, uh, you know, you, you you talked about a lot of the pro-Palestine students. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we should be clear. I want to use a different phrase: pro-Hamas uh, mm-hmm. students. You know, you know, real. You know, the, the the extent to which we have we we have found in the past uh, five weeks now since the since the atrocities, the massacres on October seventh in Israel, uh, that our academic institutions harbor um, a real legit pro-terrorist elements uh, within them. Uh, any single foreign national, you know, who holds a student visa. <laughs> Uh, under a regime that was even slightly interested in the self-preservation of the United States, uh, you, you know, you know, should should be gone by now. You know, you, you shouldn't be able to keep your student visa. The, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology just last week, in the past week, um, essentially admitted that uh, when they had incidents on their campus of uh, foreign students, uh, you know, against student visa holders, terrorizing. Jewish students, you know, you know, like something out of the Third Reich, right? Um, they didn't discipline them because they didn't want to lead to a process where these kids would lose their student visas. Ridiculous. Get them out. Get them out. They don't belong here. They're they're, they're clearly not consonant with with uh, you know any any purpose or intent that we see in in education, and they're certainly not good for America, uh, which ought to be you know the guidepost of any policy that we do. So 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 look, uh, you know, if if this if this is in fact uh, the outline of, of of a future you know Trump presidency in terms of uh, you know you know you know removing people who are here illegally, um, uh, you know controlling the border, uh, you know you know and making sure there's policies in place to do it, then um, then that, that that's all for the good. We cannot forget that the only time uh, in well in the past 25 years that. Any kind of sanity has reigned uh, on our southern border has been was, was during the Trump administration, and how did he get it? He got it by threatening the Mexican economy. He got it by threatening tariffs that uh, would have severely hurt the one thing that that regime cares about, which is the flow of money. And then suddenly we got the Remain in Mexico policy. We got a border that was that was you know if not if not all the way there, reasonably under control, certainly compared uh, to what we have now. And uh, you know if, if if this kind of thing gets us back to that, which it might. You know, you know, you and I have talked to a lot of the same Mexicans, and a lot of them say we need the we need the mano duro from the Americans. We need the strong hand. Yeah. Uh, then um, uh, th- this seems pretty mano duro to me. Yeah. And back then we had a little respect from Mex from Mexico. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. You gotta you you've got to demand it. Yeah. And you've got to show that you deserve it. And r- right now, that uh, they quite rightly believe that we don't deserve it. And unfortunately, yeah. um, uh, we've got to prove otherwise. Well, we'll continue to update our listeners on what happens on that end. But anyway, I wanted to ask you about how a couple of days ago um, they cleaned up San Francisco. And all it took was a dictator (laughs) from China to get it done. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you, Okay, so President Biden and China announced that they have agreed to work together uh, on fentanyl, Mm -hmm. where China will crack down on some of the precursors and chemicals that um, for that. And in exchange, the U.S. has said that they will allow some of their organizations to have access to U.S. technology again. So I wanted to get your perspective. Do you think this is going to make a difference as, as far as the fentanyl crisis here? Um, will we will we notice the, the things from this deal here in the U.S.? 
No, uh, no, it's it, no, it's not going to make a difference at the fentanyl crisis. The only lasting, uh, there's only going to be two lasting uh, results from from Chairman Xi's uh, visit uh, uh, to the United States. One is that uh, uh, the Chinese are going to get you know op- expanded access to U.S. technology and markets, which uh, which uh, frankly they're going to put to poor use. And the other is that San Francisco is going to be clean for a little while, uh, and that's really it. Uh, uh, the, the the idea that you can put any trust into the PRC or the Chinese Communist um, apparatus. Uh, at this late stage is preposterous. And, and frankly, the Biden team is grasping at straws uh, mm. to think it's at all possible. But look, you know, the, the, there's one thing that, that we need to understand that actually links back to our to, to our topic, you know, which is the subject of the show on, on, on the U.S.-Mexico border and Mexican affairs. Um, when we see San Francisco, which, which descended into, into uh, you know, filth and crime, I mean, there's no other way oh. to put it, uh, over several years, um, when you see it abruptly cleaned up, for the Chinese dictator, you have to know that the priorities of the regime that controls the city of San Francisco, in this case, you know, probably the city government and and and, and Governor Gavin Newsom <clears throat> and his people, uh, they, they they don't really govern in the interests and they don't work for the people that they actually rule. Mm. I, mean, I mean, they don't. Uh, you know, don't Americans deserve to have clean and safe cities? Well, apparently not. I guess but the, not. Yeah. But the dictator of China does. Uh, and that's and that 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 mindset uh, exists vis-a-vis uh, the Mexican state uh, as well, um, uh, which, which is again why I mean I, pr- I probably sound like a broken record, but it's worth repeating over and over, which is why you see the federal government intervening on Mexico's behalf against Texas so very often. Yeah, and you know I, I found it so funny the research that you find sometimes when you're doing re- when you're like trying to prepare for a podcast. But I was doing a little bit of research trying to prepare for this, and I found. This speech that President Biden gave um, before he was president was mm-hmm. August 2020, um, actually, as he was accepting um, the Democratic Party's nomination okay. um, for president. And, and this is a quote. He said, I'll be a president who will stand with our allies and friends and make it clear to our adversaries the days of cozying up to dictators is over. And I just found that fascinating because obviously like last week when we were filming our live recording of Hard Country, we talked about how he's been willing to cooperate with Venezuela. And now this Mm -hmm. week we have seen him literally rolling out a red carpet for the Chinese dictator after he said that he will not cozy up to dictators. And then the next day he said, yeah, I I, like I stand by what I said before, like he is a dictator, but he's sitting in an audience and smiling and, and, you know, listening to this 30-minute speech by the dictator in China who's talking about how, what did he say? The enduring friendship between China and the United States that will not be diminished by recent turmoil. And he Mm. compared our relationship, the U.S.'s relationship with China, to a giant ship that was trying to navigate through storms. Uh, how, How charming. (laughs) <laughs> How charming! Yeah, no, that was that, that was uh, Biden's big thing. Uh, I mean, I mean, look, President Biden is 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 famous in D.C. for getting uh, almost every issue wrong. Like he, he managed to be, especially with regard to foreign affairs, he managed to be on the wrong side of of, of absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, and so, you know, he was he was wrong about this too. And <laughs> in in mid two thousand twenty, he was talking about you know the U.S. is going to basically adopt this Jimmy Carter esque. Uh, uh, policy of only engaging with you know fellow liberal Democrats, small D Democrats uh, abroad, uh, and uh, you know insulting uh, the Saudi. Uh, it's it's unclear to me if if MBS is king or not. I, I don't I don't really pay attention to Saudi affairs, but but, but the Saudi autocrat dictator, yeah. let's use the word, um, saying he was going to make him a pariah, and and every time he's done that, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, China, to your point. 
uh, in the past, uh, you know, two, almost three years now since he, I'm sorry, yeah, almost three years since yeah, he was inaugurated, uh, uh, he, he comes crawling back. He has to reverse himself uh, eventually because he just doesn't really understand how the levers of power work uh, internationally. And um, uh, anyway, the man's in over his depth. And so is his team. You know, we have to understand that, you know, for all the criticism we level at the president, there ought to be a team of competent men yeah. about him to guide him, you know, but but people like Jake Sullivan and Secretary mm. of State Blinken and so on are are completely unequipped to handle, uh, you know, the Western Hemispheric affairs, set aside what's going on in East Asia. So that's it's, yeah. it's unfortunate, but it's true. More people need to be held accountable for that. And, um, well, speaking of San Francisco, the president of Mexico has also met um, <clears throat> with Xi Jinping. And um, they talked, they, you know, the Chinese pre president applauded the cooperation that they've had for with Mexico mm -hmm. on rail, auto, energy, um, cooperation on infrastructure, on finance, uh, EVs. And then, you know, he also offered condolences for the hurricane tragedy that Mexico had and said that they will be happy to assist. And then AMLO thanked him for his help with the pandemic <clears throat> mm -hmm. and... Yeah. Um, for offering to help with Hurricane Otis and said that they're very friendly with China and will continue to work very closely uh, to combat the drug production, which doesn't give me much confidence. But I wanted to, you know, tell you that. And then I also wanted to talk about one more thing. I don't know if we have a lot of time before we wrap, but I wanted to talk to you about some of the politics that there's been behind um, Mexico's recent Hurricane Otis um, and how badly the government of Mexico's emergency response, how bad it was to that and how badly they fa failed the storm's victims. The destruction of of, uh, of Acapulco and, and kind of the surrounding areas in uh, coastal Guerrero by this uh, by this Cat 5 hurricane. Which it's is, been a while. It's been on. It was October 25th. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's uh, it's been made so much worse by the by the government response or the absence thereof. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, AMLO. Um, uh, I guess in the past two years, kind of gutted this this emergency fund that Fonden. the Mex Mexican stake. Uh, I'm sorry, what is it? Fonden. Fonden. Yeah. Uh, is that what's called? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh, well then, well then, yes. Um, uh, that was supposed to uh, uh, be in reserve for cases like this. And, and and as with every pile of cash that he doesn't personally control, he wanted it eliminated so he could move it to something that he does control, which he did. And then there was nothing. There was nothing available uh, to help. Um, yeah, I, I can say on a personal level, I've seen what a Cat Five uh, hurricane can do. Uh, I was I was part of the I was part of the Army's um, uh, relief expedition to uh, Central America after Hurricane Mitch in late 1998, and, uh, and and I'll never forget. I mean, we saw we saw a lot of devastation, washed out bridges, and and um, uh, there was a riverbed that we ended up building a bridge over uh, my engineer platoon. Uh, that uh, apparently used to have used to have a, a village on the side of it, and, and it was just it was swept away. God. So I mean, horrific. But we were. Um, uh, I'll have to look up the name of the of the volcano. But uh, uh, but uh, we were we 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 flew into we flew into Managua. We went to um, Puerto Corinto, I believe, uh, uh, and then and then ended up. Um, driving halfway to where we uh, where we spent the next several months working, which was uh, kind of north of Esteli up in the highlands. And in the morning, because uh, we bivouacked in this field, and in the morning, um, uh, you know, kind of the sun rises and you're, you're getting ready, and there is uh, a mountain uh, off in the distance, and, and half of the mountain is basically like this sickly gray, 
And uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I apologize to the listeners. I've, I've, I'm blanking on what the name of this is, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an infamous incident. But, uh, but the Cat 5 hurricane dumped so much water oh. uh, and wind that, that, uh, that essentially the slopes of this, of this um, I believe it was a dormant volcano, um, uh, the mountain essentially collapsed on itself and, and buried um, uh, hundreds of people in, in a settlement uh, oh at the gosh. base of it. I mean, it was, it, it was just awful. And so you look at it, it's, it, it's like seeing, you know, kind of, you know, they, they call these, these things acts of God. And you can, you can see mm-hmm. why they do it because just the awesomeness, the terrible awesomeness yeah. of, of, of the power on display uh, and knowing that there is underneath um, this gray slab uh, a town. You know, like Vesuvius uh, yeah. is, and so and so. I think about that, uh, and the destruction that we saw in Mitch. In uh, I mean, this is uh, 25 years ago now, um, uh, and and I think about it when we see the the, the news about Acapulco and and Guerrero, and they were hit um, by also by a Cat Five, uh, also essentially unprepared, also with a state uh, that couldn't um, uh, really account for itself. Now in the late 90s. Uh, fortunately, like the, the United States stepped in, uh, and and you know, I, I wouldn't say we were, you know, I, I don't know, we made things much better, but there was there, there was help, you know, in addition to local infrastructure. There's nothing like that in in Guerrero. I mean, Lord knows if they invite the Chinese in, they're not gonna, they'll just get in debt uh, essentially. Yeah. But what a tragedy! I'm sorry to sorry to no, ramble no. at length about it, but no, I'm glad you brought that up because you know the the videos. It took a while to get some of that because the mm-hmm. the the. The hurricane just hit it so hard that for a couple of days there, they, you know, it cut out all the power. It destroyed homes, beachfront hotels, like turned them into piles of sticks yeah. and it completely flooded all of the streets. So it was incredibly devastating. And what's especially sad about it is, you know, Acapulco was once like world famous, mm-hmm. you know, beach city, um, great like tourist destination, but it yeah. had been in a very sharp decline for a while. Because of cartel violence. Because of cartel violence. Yeah. Cartel violence basically like was already destroying it and it made it into one of the most dangerous places. It had one of the highest murder rates in the entire world. That's right. Yeah. And so that's very sad. But anyways, now it's completely destroyed and something yeah. that is even sadder is Mexico continues to destroy it. So they messed up on a lot of fronts. Um, they apparently were warned about it in advance. Did you know that? The U.S. Natural, uh, National Hurricane Center warned them that it was coming and they just weren't prepared and yeah. were caught off guard. Yeah. And then after it happened, all the residents there were pretty much left to fend for themselves. Uh, there was claims that people were having to defend their property, like mm-hmm. with machetes and defend their families because there were looters coming in. There were thieves trying to steal things, which is absolutely terrible. And, you know, when, when AMLO was asked about it, I don't know if you saw this video, but when AMLO was asked about it, he kind of chuckled and he said, like, Oh, it's just, you know, it's become a national pastime to talk badly about me. So he, like, played victim. Did he really say that? Basically, yes. Oh, my gosh. He said, como que ya se volvió deporte nacional hablar mal del presidente. That's Which, unbelievable. Yeah. And yet, and, and yet too believable with him. Well, and, you know, it was it was kind of funny. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a video of him trying to go to Acapulco. I did see that. Did and, see he, and he couldn't make it. He, had to he turn couldn't around. make it. He Well, he started walking, like, and a lot of people were, you know, giving him a hard time because it seemed like it was for the photo op. But he got of out of his Jeep that was stuck in the mud, and he started walking. And, like, two hours later, people saw him back in Mexico City, and they were like, did you just go for the photos? Um, I mean, it was for the photos, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I the reason I thought it was so interesting is that a lot of people think that the cartels are going to profit enormously from the rebuilding efforts in in Acapulco. I mean, I mean entirely if there are rebuilding efforts, but yeah, yeah, I mean organized crime is going to be part of any any large-scale expenditure there. Why don't we uh why don't we end on a happy note and talk about uh talk about food? Oh yeah, the article yeah. you sent me. It's what's the article called? It's like twenty five essential di dishes in Mexico City. In Mexico City, City. it was in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, this morning, I think. Was it this morning I or yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so so yes, twenty five. Uh, I believe twenty five essential restaurants in Mexico City. Um, a good list. I was I was very proud because I've been to three of them. You've been to nine of them, isn't that Maybe right? Maybe eight. I Maybe haven't eight? counted, but I, I recognize a couple of them. Tell us tell tell us your favorite from the list, please. Ooh. Okay. Maybe El Cardenal. We were just talking about this, so I'd have to look through the list to remember which ones are good. <laughs> well, what, what's, so so actually, that, that, that's my choice, too. I mean, of the three that I've been to, El Cardenal. I've been to El Cardenal, San Angelin, and um, Yoshimi. Uh, San Angelin. But San Angelin was in there for their margarita, and they had the most amazing food. So I feel like they deserve to be in there for some of their other food. I mean, just the grounds of the San Angelin, which is uh, – sorry, sorry for yeah. the for, for those of you who have not been uh, to Mexico City. It's it's just beautiful um, uh, colonial-style. Oh, um, incredible. Uh, it's almost like, like a Like an hacienda kind an of. An hacienda. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's got, it's got green grass and nice trees and things like that. El Cardenal is my favorite, too. Okay, so what's your favorite at El Cardenal, though? Tell me. What do you like? Their about hot it? chocolate. <laughs> yeah. And they have their hot chocolate and then they have like their huevos divorciados, which oh, yeah, is yeah. really good for breakfast. Really good. Yeah. But I, I've never forgotten their hot chocolate. And you can make it spicy. I remember that mm -hmm. my husband did that and we were just mind blown. We kept going back. But it's my sweet tooth. Their conchas. That's that's a, that's what made it my favorite. But Yoshimi's nice. It's just very swanky. It's not Mexican. No. It's Japanese. Yeah. Um good and food, though. And then obviously San Angelin is amazing for more than the food. Just the place is absolutely spectacular. My yeah. my, my favorite is the same as yours, uh, El Cardenal. Uh, although my I don't have uh, you've got exponentially more restaurants on the list than I do. Um, but it, it's nice to end with something positive yeah. about, about Mexico and Mexico City. Uh, and I love the conchas. Yeah. Um, because they're a South Texas favorite as well. And yeah. and what's interesting about about the ones at El Cardenal, at least at least I found, you know, having very familiar with the South Texas version, is that they're much softer, more más suave, I guess. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure how they achieve it, but they look exactly the same. But the sugar on the top of the concha just kind of flakes yeah. off, and it's so nice. And you have it with some coffee and and the hot chocolate, and it's just it's it's just it's just perfect. That sounds um, amazing. And right especially now. especially in the ones uh, you know, there's multiple Cardinal locations. So I've only oh, yeah, been I've only lot. been to the one that's outside of um, uh, Parque Alameda mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, near the near the Hilton Reforma, yeah, yeah. right? And is, is, that's the one you've been to as yeah, well. Yeah, I think it's like in the lobby of the hotel. right? It's kind of in the yeah. lobby, but you can see. And I love I love looking out because they've got these um, uh, these 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 tall trees and some jacarandas. In, uh, in in Parque Alameda, and, and we've got the coffee and the concha, and you're sitting there and you're looking out at the park. This park, by the way, is is I, I don't know if people have looked at the history of Parque Alameda. It's like 700 years old. It's a, it's 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 an Aztec era park that yeah. survived uh, everything into into this day. Um, and there's a, it's a connection with history and just beauty that uh, I think Mexico City can uniquely provide. So yeah, well, I think, I think there's some research we need to go do in Mexico City soon, right? Yeah, probably. I would love to uh, be able to focus on on the ample positive about Mexico. Yeah. Yes. So thank you, Melissa. Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.